One of the most amazing aspects of the Lord Jesus was and is his unpredictability. What I mean is, it is very difficult to guess what Jesus is going to do in various situations of life today, just like it was very difficult to guess what he was going to do when he was here on earth. Like Paul said in Romans 11.34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Isaiah 55.8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Jesus is very unpredictable. But that doesn't mean that we have the right to second-guess what he does. You see, we don't usually know why he does what he does because we don't have the whole picture and that is why we're often confused about what he does. For example, would you consider it rude if when Jesus was here on the earth, a lady asked him a question and he responded by comparing her to a dog? You would consider that rude, wouldn't you? So would I. Yet that is exactly what happened on one occasion in our Lord's ministry, and Jesus was by no means being rude. Instead, he had a very important reason for doing what he did. The story to which I am referring is found in Mark chapter 7. So please, if you are not already there, turn there with me in your Bible. And follow along as I read verses 24 through 30, which will be our text of consideration this morning. Mark tells us, From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek or a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. As you can see from reading through these verses, some of Jesus' actions seem shocking to us. The way he responded to this woman doesn't fit with our view of him. It doesn't match our perspective of him. Sure, he eventually healed the woman's daughter, but that was after he seemed to insult her by comparing her to a little dog. You can see why I said that Jesus was and still is unpredictable. We don't usually know why he does what he does in life, which is why we are often confused about what he does or doesn't do. This was the very thing that confused John the baptizer in Matthew chapter 11. 
You remember the story. John found himself in prison for doing exactly what God had told him to do as the king's forerunner. Exactly what God told him to do. He was to prepare the way for the coming of the king, which he did. And he ended up in a lonely dungeon prison awaiting execution. As a result, he became confused. He became discouraged. So he sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus, or he sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him if he was really the promised Messiah. You see, Jesus wasn't doing what John expected him to do. Have you ever had that experience in life? I'm sure you have. Jesus wasn't doing what John expected him to do. So, John sent two of his disciples to Jesus with a question. Jesus responded by saying in Matthew eleven six, 6, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That is somewhat of a gentle rebuke, or at least a caution from Jesus regarding our attitudes. He addressed the common tendency of our hearts when we don't understand what he is doing or why he is doing what he is doing. What is our tendency? Think about that. When you are confused in life about what the Lord is doing or why he is doing what he is doing or why he doesn't seem to be doing anything, what is your tendency? Your tendency, if you're like me, is to get offended at what the Lord is doing or what he is not doing. The tendency is to get offended. A struggle begins to rise in your heart. You think the Lord is making a mistake, even though you may not say it in so many words or you may never voice it out loud. You think he should be doing things differently. You get offended at what the Lord is doing or what he is not doing. That is why Jesus made the statement in Matthew eleven six, 6, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You could translate that, Blessed is he who does not stumble because of me. What? You mean the Lord's actions might cause us to stumble? Yes. If we take them the wrong way, see them through our own grid, misinterpret them, we could stumble. Let me paraphrase that in a way so that we can grasp it more clearly. Here's Matthew eleven six paraphrased and yet still retaining the concept, the idea. Blessed is he who is not upset with the way I run my business. That's what Jesus was saying. Blessed is the person who does not get bitter. Blessed is the person who does not become cynical. Why would the Lord say that? Because it is our tendency, when things are not going the way we think they ought to be going, to become disillusioned with the Lord. And if we don't deal with that disillusionment in our hearts, we can become bitter and we can even become cynical. So Jesus says in Matthew eleven six, 6, Blessed is he who is not offended 
because of me. Beloved, we have to trust that the Lord knows what he is doing. That's what John the baptizer needed to do. And the same thing goes for us. We don't understand. We don't always understand what the Lord is doing. We won't be able to figure out why he is doing what he is doing or why he is not doing what we think he ought to do. But he knows what he is doing. And his way is best. Now that brings us back to this story here in Mark 7. Was Jesus being harsh toward this woman? Was Jesus being unloving to this woman? Not on your life. Never did anyone love as deeply and profoundly and genuinely and unselfishly and indiscriminately as our Lord. So why did he do things this way with this woman? In this situation, I think we can venture a fairly educated guess. Jesus knew what was in this woman's heart. That kind of thing is clearly stated in several incidents in the gospel record. Jesus knew what was in people's hearts. He knew that the woman at the well had been married five times and was living with the man, though he had never met her. He knew the rich young ruler wasn't willing to let go of whatever was holding him back to be saved. So after walking him through several things, he zeroed in on his money. Matthew 9, 4 says he knew the thoughts of the scribes before they ever spoke. Jesus knew what was in people's hearts. And he knew what was in this woman's heart. Therefore, he handled the situation in such a way so as to draw out her humility and her faith. This woman was exemplary in her humility and in her faith. And Jesus wanted to bring that out in the open for others to see so that others could learn from her example. Think about it. If Jesus had simply granted her request immediately... No one would have known what an example this woman really was. But Jesus wanted that brought out. And that's why he handled the situation the way he did. Would you have responded the way this woman did? If Jesus had talked to you this way, would you have responded this way? Probably not. And neither would I. That's one of the reasons why this text is recorded for us. It's a challenge to our own hearts regarding our attitudes, our heart condition. And beloved, I believe this is especially the case for us here in 21st century America. We are trained by our culture. We are discipled by our culture to believe that we deserve certain things in life. And we have certain rights. We have rights. Therefore, our expectations are that we are entitled to things. Can you imagine most Americans, even American Christians, in this kind of interchange with Jesus? Can you imagine it? Because of our sense of entitlement, we would be outraged if Jesus compared us to a little dog that feeds under the table. 
So there's a lot more here for us to grapple with than just a story about Jesus healing a girl who was demon-possessed. There are heart issues to deal with as we see how Jesus worked with, ministered to this precious woman. So let's consider the story together and not merely consider it as only history, but as contemporary truth for life. Verse 24, Mark tells us, from there, that is from in Galilee, up north where Jesus carried out most of his ministry, from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Tyre and Sidon, mentioned here in this verse, were Phoenician cities out on the Mediterranean coast. If you can picture in your mind the land of Israel with the Mediterranean Sea out to the west there, you probably have seen Israel enough in the headlines that you have at least some awareness of the countries around it. Lebanon in the north, Syria, and then you have over, you know, to what's uh, the kingdom of Jordan and then Saudi Arabia, etc. Well, this is way up north beyond the, the land of Israel proper, out on the west coast, right out on the Mediterranean coast. These two cities were outside the land of Israel. Therefore, the Jewish people considered the people of those cities pagans. They considered them heathens. The Jewish people saw themselves as far better than the people of those cities. This was not only because of the location of that region, but also because of its history. If you know some of Israel's history in the pages of Hebrew Scripture, then you know that one of the most wicked kings Israel ever had was a man named Ahab. Ahab's wife was named Jezebel, and she was from this area. She was an evil and vile woman whose father was king of the Sidonians. He was the king of Phoenicia, which included Tyre and Sidon. His name was Ethbaal, which meant Baal is alive. Baal is alive. He was a worshiper of Baal, and so was his daughter Jezebel. In fact, she was the one who brought Baal worship to the land of Israel. So the people of Israel in Jesus' day were not very fond of the region of Tyre and Sidon, and they weren't very fond of the people of Tyre and Sidon. But Jesus went there because there was no prejudice in his heart. Who knows? Maybe he went there just for this woman. As he had in John 4 gone through Samaria just for the woman at the well. Mark tells us here in this verse that Jesus wasn't looking for a public ministry in this area. In fact, he was trying to get away, but word got out about him. He was trying to pull away from the demands of ministry among the Jewish people in the Galilee region, but he couldn't escape being discovered. Somehow word got out that this son of David, this Messiah of Israel, was in the region of Tyre and Sidon. And when word got out, verse 25 says, For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. 
The woman was a Greek. Your translation may say Gentile. A Syrophoenician by birth. And she kept asking him, begging him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Please notice that Mark identifies this woman as a Gentile or a Greek. He says a Syrophoenician by birth. He wants to make sure that we understand that this is not an Israelite woman. This is not a Jewish woman. Yet according to Matthew's account, shockingly, she addresses Jesus as son of David, which means she considered him to be the Messiah of Israel. As the Messiah, she knew he had the power and the authority to deliver her demonized daughter. That's why she cried out to Jesus for help. But shockingly, Jesus seemed to imply that he may not help her. Verse 27, But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. According to Matthew's account of this story, Jesus was completely silent at first. He eventually made this statement, but at first he was completely silent, almost appearing as if he was ignoring this woman. He didn't even answer the woman at first. And the disciples of Jesus took his silence to mean that he had no interest in helping anyone or ministering to anyone except Jewish people. That's the way they took it. After all, it is clear from various biblical accounts that the disciples had a problem with prejudice that the Lord had to deal with in their lives. This comes out This comes out repeatedly in the gospel accounts. For example, in Luke chapter 9, Peter and John wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans. You know how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. They wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans, and Jesus rebuked them sternly for their attitudes. In Acts chapter 10, think about how late that is. We're talking past the resurrection, past the ascension of Jesus, past the coming of the Holy Spirit. Way into Acts chapter 10, it still took the Lord three visions to get Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Because Peter was so reluctant to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Can you imagine that? And there are several other stories in the gospels that show us that the disciples had a problem with prejudice. So it's not, a, it's not surprising that they assumed that Jesus' lack of response to this lady initially meant that he wanted nothing to do with her. They even asked, Mark doesn't tell us this, but Matthew does, they even asked Jesus to send her away. Lord, would you just get rid of her? Tell her to go away. But he wasn't about to do that. He was going to show her mercy. But he waited to answer her. There was this very pregnant pause to give time for the disciples to put their hearts right out on the table. To just reveal where they were at. 
You see, Jesus could have simply granted her request immediately, but he wanted to use this occasion to impact his disciples in a way they needed to be challenged. Her example, once it comes out, her example is going to be a rebuke to their own hearts, which is something they needed and something we need. Jesus was silent for a while. And when he did respond, he indicated that the focus of his mission was the lost people of Israel. That's what he meant by this proverbial saying, let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. That was the Lord's way of saying that his focus was the Jewish people. In fact, in Matthew's account of this story, Jesus specifically said this to the woman, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus wasn't being harsh when he made that comment. He was simply stating the facts. He was the Messiah of Israel. And he had been sent to the people of Israel. Beloved, do you realize what mercy it is that you and I as Gentiles are in the family of God? This is something we just sort of take for granted. Maybe aided by our sense of entitlement. But there is a sense in which we, you and I, we're outsiders. We are outsiders. Let me show you this in Ephesians 2. Turn from Mark past Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writing to Gentile believers in his day addressed them specifically, and so these words are directly applicable to us as Gentile believers. In Ephesians 2, verse 11, he says, Therefore remember, notice that's an imperative, that's a command to you and to me. Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Now, Paul is just relating what was commonly known in that day, that the Jewish people called Gentile people uncircumcision, or the uncircumcised. That's the way they referred to them. So he says, you, you need to remember the condition you were in. Verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That is the description beloved, of our condition as Gentiles. Please understand, this is not merely saying that we were sinners. Sure, we were and are sinners. Paul already said that back in verses 1 through 3. That's not what he's saying here. The emphasis of these verses is that we were not only sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, we were also outside of the people group to whom God gave promises and hope. God made his covenants with Israel. And he gave his promises to Israel. But we had no claim on those as Gentiles. In the words of verse 12, as Gentiles, we were without. We were, that, we, we were without five benefits that Israel had. Paul lists them here in this text. Number one, we were without Christ. In other words, Gentiles had no hope of a Christ or a Messiah. The Jews had a messianic hope. 
They knew that one day their Savior would come. They knew their Deliverer would come. He is promised in their scriptures. But the Gentiles had no claim to this Messiah. He was a Jewish Messiah. Secondly, as Gentiles, we were without citizenship. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Israel's commonwealth wasn't just their nationality. It was all the truth God gave them that the Gentiles didn't have. Every Jew had exposure and access to the truth of God and the truth of the old covenant. Gentiles had no claim on that covenant. It was made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. And that's why the next phrase, in the next phrase, Paul says, strangers from the covenants of promise. That's number three in the list. Gentiles were without the covenants of the promise. Notice that promise is singular and covenants is plural. The Abrahamic promise is the overriding promise in all of God's covenants with Israel. Within that great promise, there were several covenants. The Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the new covenant, etc. But Gentiles were strangers to all of it. We had no promise from God, no guarantee, nothing. Gentiles were without Christ, without citizenship, without covenants, and therefore without hope. That's number four on the list. Without hope. I mean, if you don't have a Messiah to look forward to, and you don't have a kingdom, and you don't have any promises, then you don't have any hope. And if that isn't bad enough, the end of verse 12 says, we were without God in the world. That doesn't necessarily mean that all Gentiles were atheists. It just means they didn't have the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now look at these two verses, beloved. That, that's the former condition of the Gentiles in the past and our condition prior to salvation. Gentiles were not only dead in sin, that's verses 1 through 3 of this chapter, but also alienated from access to the truth that could deliver them. That's verses 11 and 12. But God had a remedy. Verse 13 says this, But now, oh, those words, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. These Gentile Christians were once without Christ, but now they were in Christ. And the same thing could be said of us. Prior to salvation, we were not only dead in sin, dead in trespasses and sins, we were also outside of the people group to whom God gave promises and hope. So you can say it this way. When God saved us, he did a double miracle. He brought us from our far-off condition, that's as Gentiles, and he brought us out of our deadness in sin. All that was accomplished by the blood of Christ. So we should never forget that we as Gentiles are, in a sense, double recipients of God's mercy. We have received mercy as unworthy sinners, and we have received mercy as undeserving Gentiles. Now here's the amazing thing. The lady in Mark 7 understood all of this. That far in advance, she had a handle on all of this which is what made her such a remarkable example of humility and faith. Now go back to Mark 7 with this 
perspective in mind. This Gentile lady knew that the Messiah was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she also knew that there was more than enough mercy to go around. She wasn't put off by the Lord's statement, Let the little children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. She wasn't offended by that. When we read this, we say, Why? Why would Jesus make such a comment? What did he mean by this? Was he calling this woman a dog? No, he was not. He was simply saying the same thing he had said about his responsibility to address the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. Interestingly, the word that Jesus used here was a word that speaks of a family pet. So he was saying that his primary responsibility from God was to minister to the children, i.e. the children of Israel, and not the others in the greater household. But even with all of that in mind, it still doesn't make it much easier to accept. If this lady had been like most people, you know how she would have responded? She would have said something to the effect, so much for your God of love. So much for your message of compassion. So much for your narrow, bigoted religion. I I, I want nothing to do with a God like that. I want nothing to do with a religion like that. But she said nothing of the sort. By the way, would this have offended you if Jesus had said this to you? If you had come begging Jesus for mercy because your child was demon-possessed? And he responded by saying what he said here about it's not good to take the children's food and feed it to the little dogs. Would this have offended you? If so, it shows that your heart wasn't where this woman's heart was at. And it also shows that you don't have a proper understanding of how undeserving you are of the Lord's mercy. You have been discipled by our culture, which says that you are entitled to this. You deserve this. Beloved, we are not entitled to any good thing from God. It's all mercy. This dear, precious woman understood that. What incredible humility. Verse 28, notice her response. She answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Not, not what, do you, what do you think you're saying? What are you, what are you implying? Yes, Lord. I understand all of that, Lord. I get that. I accept that. Yes. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. She knew exactly what Jesus meant by his expression. She knew that was his way of restating what he had said about being sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She understood that was his mission, his focus, his responsibility. And she didn't take offense at it. She acknowledged that she knew God's plan for the Messiah to minister to Israel. But she also stated 
that she understood God's mercy is so overabundant that there is plenty left in the overflow. Oh, what a remarkable woman. What humility. What faith. No wonder Jesus wanted to draw it out for others to see. This is an example to all of us. Every one of us here in this room. It's a rebuke to all of us. Especially those of us who think we are entitled to God's mercy or entitled to God's blessings. This woman felt no sense of entitlement. She had no problem with the fact that the Messiah was for Israel, for the people of Israel. But she also understood that God's mercy is so overabundant that there is plenty left in the overflow, and she would be satisfied to be filled with just the leftovers, just the crumbs. So Jesus granted her request. Verse 29, then he said to her, For this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Not only did Jesus heal her daughter without even going to her, the Holy Spirit made sure that her story was recorded in in inspired Scripture for all of time, for all to read. That's how remarkable her example was and still is to this day. Again, I ask you, would you have responded this way? Probably not, and neither would I. That's one of the reasons why this text is recorded for us. It's a challenge to our own hearts regarding our attitudes of entitlement, assuming that we have a right to expect the Lord to do certain things for us. Beloved, we have no rights. Think think biblically, not American. We have no rights. We don't deserve anything from God except the lake of fire. Everything outside of the lake of fire is grace. Don't take the extensive mercy of our Lord for granted. We should never forget that we as Gentiles are double recipients of his mercy. Double. We have received mercy as unworthy sinners And we have received mercy as undeserving Gentiles. Oh, how important it is that we have that perspective. Is that your perspective? Do you really see it that way? As we close the message this morning, let me ask you one more question. Don't don't tune me out here. Have you received that mercy from the Lord? You see, there is coming a day when it will be too late. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There is a time when God listens to sinners and responds to those who are repentant. That time is now. However, there will be an end to that time. Don't presume upon God's mercy. Receive His mercy today by receiving His Son, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior. Ask Him to come into your life 
to forgive you of your sins and to make you the man or the woman he wants you to be. A woman like this, with this kind of humility, this kind of insight, and this kind of faith. Let's bow together as we close this morning. And with a text like this, it is so critical that we not merely close our Bibles and just walk out of here unchanged or unchallenged. So let me begin right where we ended there by asking you first and foremost, have you received the Lord's mercy and His gracious salvation? Have you humbled yourself before God to cry out for His mercy, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Have you received the gracious salvation of Christ by receiving Him? That is first and foremost. And I know that many of you in here have. You truly know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But if you don't, or if there's any doubt in your mind, that's first and foremost. Turn to the Lord in humble, childlike faith. Cry out for His mercy, His salvation. But let me remind you of something. If you have done that, if you've experienced God's mercy and salvation, that doesn't mean that the attitudes of your heart or my heart are automatically all right. There's nothing automatic about it. It's possible to be a Christian, a genuine Christian, and still have an attitude of entitlement. I deserve this. I have rights. Look at your heart. Are you more American or more Christian? Are you discipled by our culture or discipled by Scripture? To have an, an attitude, a perspective that says, whatever good things God gives me in life are undeserved. I don't deserve anything except the lake of fire. So I am thankful. Instead of demanding, I'm thankful for God's gifts. Gifts from Him or things from other people. Whatever I experience good in life is undeserved, and I'm grateful. Is that your attitude? Beloved, I, I think this passage is so crucial for us as American Christians to be challenged by, exhorted by, and if necessary, rebuked by, to straighten out our attitudes and our assumptions. So, Father, we are thankful that you saw fit to record this remarkable story in Holy Scripture. What a, what a unique lady. As we look at her example and how Jesus brought her heart out on the table for others to see, her humility, her faith, her insight, may it be an encouragement to us and may it be a challenge to us regarding our own hearts and our own perspectives our own assumptions, our own sense of entitlement or expectation. Help us to see that when we demand, whether from you or from other people or from organizations or institutions, when we demand, we have the wrong attitude. So challenge our hearts. 
Thank you for the incredible wisdom of the Lord Jesus and the way he ministered to people, the way he dealt with this woman, and for the great mercy shown to her by delivering her demon-possessed daughter. Father, we as Gentiles recognize that your son, the Lord Jesus, was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And because of that, we are so grateful that you have allowed us to be in your family, included us in the kingdom. Because we were without Christ, without hope, without promises, without covenants. And yet you have brought us into your family. May that humble us and fill us with gratitude. We pray these things together in Jesus' precious name. Amen.